out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist, Marco Peroni, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview and after several minutes of casual chat, which has now been edited out, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early musical influences before he went on to work with Adamant and also Sinead O'Connor and many, many more people. Anyway, we'll find out more about all that information in this fascinating interview. Anyway, take notes. I will test you at the end to make sure you are paying attention. Anyway, Marco, tell us about your early musical... Yes, your early musical journey. It's over to you. It would have been the same thing. It would have been, it would have been the sort of... Uh... The traditional star man, which now everybody uses, people of my age is sort of now use as the go to. This was my awakening, and it was star man, right? It really was. And I mean, I, I, I was at, I was born in 1959, so as much as I liked T Rex, um, they weren't, it didn't quite have the same impact, yes. because Mark Bowen had long hair. Yeah. I did, I did have all these, I, I did buy all the records and everything, but it, it just, I just wasn't. I didn't want to look like Mark Bowens, which I think was the sort of thing that thing that made it for me when I saw David Bowie doing, you know, doing Starman. You think, fucking, hell, I want to look like that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And when were you in a quite a musical house at the time? Was it a no. your parents? No, they weren't musical at all. Yes, uh, I think I think my dad since told me, oh, I wanted to. Be a musician and all that, but I couldn't do it because oh, I don't know, I don't know why you couldn't. Why couldn't you do it? You know, because oh, because I had to go to work. Well, everyone's got to go to work, Dad. You know, it's just not. And I remember seeing Top of the Pops and saying, you know, and them saying, and Mum was going, well, what are you going to do with your life? I said, well, I, you know, I want to be, I want to be a musician. I want to be in a band. He says, oh well, you can't be in a band. You know, you can't be like those people on top of the box. There's those people who are exactly like me. I mean, exactly like me. Yes. You know, you know, it starts with daydreaming, doesn't it? And boredom sometimes. And, yeah, bo- yeah, boredom. And a, a, a kind of um, that early knowledge that I don't know what this life is going to be, but I don't think I want it. Yeah. So I want to do something else. Well, I think with a lot of people, they don't have Plan B, sort of. So it's kind of. I don't have Plan. I I didn't have Plan B. I mean, I don't. If you know, it's like either I want to be in a band and be all rich and famous and that. There wasn't a Plan B. It wasn't like what happens if it doesn't happen, which is, you know, it's unlikely to happen. So I, I didn't have a Plan B. What happens then? I didn't have any, you know, qualifications. I have no skills whatsoever of any kind. Um, and I can play guitar and use a phone, and that's about it. And um, so I didn't. I didn't have a plan B. I didn't have a you know, go back to university or something more. Yes, a trust fund. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't have a trust fund. Or... <laughs> Damn, that's so unlucky. But when did you pick? A, when did the guitar appear in the house? Um, I think my I think my cousin had a really bad 
acoustic and she just gave up on it and my dad just got it just she gave it to my dad and he gave it to me and that's where it started I was one of, would have been about 13 I mean I didn't really start playing till I was sort of 14 or 15 and I just I, mean, I tried to I just couldn't do it and um, and suddenly it just started coming together just to give up a lot like most guitar like most people are trying to learn an instrument do they give up a lot yes. they, and I kept thinking I gave up for a year. I didn't. I think I'd given up for three weeks, just put it in the cupboard and got it out again. And suddenly it was easier. You think, oh, okay. Yeah. But, so, yeah, I mean, that's what... Yeah, so I, I think I actually, I actually started when I was 13, but I don't, I don't think I did it in earnest until I was 14. And did you leave it school? Was a, lot, a lot harder than I thought it was. Yes, well, absolutely. Because I think in those days, I remember practicing with the guitar for a very short time, but I realised that the strings and everything about it would have made it quite hard for a beginner yeah. to pick up and learn rather than a kind of an easy, you know, a, a much more user-friendly one for a for a, a beginner, so to speak. So yeah. um, it was a bit tricky. And as the and as the 70s progressed, and you were obviously a bit more, well, A, you were in London land, weren't you? Yeah. And also, yeah. you would have started seeing different things happening, like, you know, people yeah. dressing differently. Because I must admit, my brother, who's a bit older than me, seven years, I mean, we come from the countryside. So as you can imagine, you're a bit behind the times, like like yeah. the Wombles, really. But, um, yeah. but yes, but he was into all that prog rock stuff and early sort of Black Sabbath and Deep Purple. But yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barclay James Harvest was kind of big. In, in his kind of record collection, as well as... Um... Yeah, it was big in most people's record collections. Uh, one of the things that really influenced me was prog rock, but it all the wrong reasons. I just hated every fucking note of it. Um, apart from Genesis, which I, I kind of like Genesis, but I think I just like Peter Gabriel because he wore makeup. Um, but apart from that, I mean, I, just, I was just so anti-prog rock. I mean, I used to sort of seethe with anger. Just the sight of like an Emerson Lake and Palmer album, <laughs> and uh, and those stupid covers, they're stupid like Tales of Topo Topographic Ocean. You didn't have a so Roger like, Dean poster on the wall then? No, <laughs> no, no. I've, I mean, I've, I've sort of, you know, in the intervening years, I've, I've, I've sort of think that oh, Roger Dean's quite good, really, particularly the sort of um, what was it, um, Motown chart busters one he did. He did oh, a lot yeah. of things, and it was all, it was all these animatronic animals, wasn't it? He did one for Budgie. It was a big chocolate Budgie or something. And then, you know, there was Tarkus. There was a big tank. Yes. I don't know who Tarkus... Well, who was Tarkus by? I don't even know. Um, I think that was Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Ah, OK, yeah, there was Tarkus. I quite like the cover to that. Yeah. Um, but as far as the music, I did, I did try and listen to it. I did try and listen to... What was it? Um, pictures for an exhibition by Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Oh, that's the one with the great anthem, isn't it? I think it's bollocks. Yeah. And there was there was a I, I, I think I think the old grey whistle test absolutely loved them, and they would often have those kind oh, of sh yeah. shots of them with those massive trucks, which had Emerson, Lake and Palmer on each different oh, one. Not very nice. Yeah, and somebody used to be employed to to get the rug out so that one of them yeah, could get start. the rug. Yeah, the rug. The Persian yeah, rug. It, it, <laughs> it was a sort of time of excess. Of, um, I mean, I always liked excess, but 
I, I can't listen to I just still can't listen to that music. I haven't even gone, I've sort of tried to go back and rediscover it, thinking, am I missing something? So, you know, as an adult, went back, went back to listen to Tales of Topographic topographic oceans or roundabout or something whatever it's called by yes yes i just think this is cobblers every fucking note this is just cobblers <laughs> so when when did you go to your first gig when was your first kind of gig and first album and uh, single? it was slade slade at wembley empire pool i think they won the they won the 1972 poll winners uh thing they they would came out as top band so I went to see them at, at the Empire Pool or whatever it's called now the arena and that was my first gig Slade nice that's a that's supported a by Blackwood Sue who were really good actually oh no doesn't ring a bell so when did you oh, okay no. the next night the next night because I went on Saturday night and Adam went on Sunday night and it was he went to see the faces supporting by the New, supported by the New York Dolls mmm that was quite life changing, I think. Yeah. Yes, that was. I, did, I didn't. I didn't. I. I. Uh, go the New York Dolls for Slade. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. But then, yeah. but as 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 we got into the mid seventies, were you starting to sort of pick up? That kind of the punk vibe with bands, because I know I sort of did an interview with a with a very young chap who was in Eater. <laughs> he was, I think, still. Right, at, okay. He was still at school. Had to go and steal their instruments to sort of form a band. But um, right. did you sort of kind of start to feel there was a, a sort of a movement that was going to, that was happening during that period? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't feel there was a movement. It was uh, no, it was because it wasn't happening. But I, I. I through David Bowie and through buying, because I, I bought Transformer, mainly because I, I love those pictures of Lou Reed with the eyeliner on, and and when Bowie did Transformer, I thought, well, I've got to listen to this, and I thought it was just amazing. Yes. So through that, went and discovered the Velvet Underground, and I thought that was amazing. So you know, the Velvet Underground, the Velvet Underground is just sort of that has the elements of punk in it, doesn't it? Well, yes, absolutely. Though it's always a bit surprising when you first hear it because it starts with Sunday morning on side one, doesn't it? And you think, yeah, that's, that's quite a pretty song actually. <laughs> yeah, and then it goes no, in. They were, they were very. Pretty. It was just um, it was a great songwriter, brilliant songwriter, one of the best ever. Uh, and I was just transferred. You know, I just loved, and I bought when bought everything by the Underground. Uh, and realise, and then hearing like bits in them, like the bits of the things I love, like Roxy Music, which Roxy is my favourite band. I'm a complete Roxy Roxy boy. And um, Roxy Music, David Bowie, Velvet Underground. Um, through that, you, you know, if you go to you know York Dolls and to the Stooges, all that, which was which was all you know, it was it's proto punk, I suppose. Yes, I don't, I don't like all those labels. I never know what they mean. Um, Post-punk, pre-punk, proto-punk. What is it? You know. Yeah. Because even Adam and the Ants get described to have all these labels put on them. I said, I don't, I don't know what that label means. <laughs> post-modern. What was, I don't know. Well, because we were supposed to be post-modern. Like Roxy is supposed to be post-modern. 
Right. Uh, I think, well, well, I've never heard of it. We weren't trying to be postmodernists. I still don't know what it is. <laughs> yes, quite. I know. People get very excited. I suppose, you know, there, there are kind of like a vibe of different, you know, I think there's a bit of a vibe from one period to another. And, and you can yeah. you can say, but, you know, putting the label, because, yes, you get the sort of the famous punk period and then you get the famous post-punk and then new romantic and then indie pop as well as all yeah. the other stuff that goes with it. So, um, yes. So then when did you play your, when did you sort of, because your first appearance was with Susan the Banshees. Yeah, yeah. And was that, um, I mean, you were still kind of young at that stage, weren't you? I was, uh, that, I can't, was, wasn't that April, April 76? Or, yes. It was April 76. So my birthday is 27th of April, so I would have been 16 at the time. Yes, and did you and and with that appearance, this was at the the hundred, the hundred club punk festival. Yeah. Did um yeah. did you do much rehearsing on for that particular gig? No, we did um one evening. We did one evening, but we realized, actually realized that none of us could play, except me. And but one guitarist is not a band make, <laughs> so um. The original the original idea was to. Do, cover versions of songs we didn't like uh, but I think they were, even that was too ambitious we couldn't even fuck things up I mean we just couldn't play at all I mean Susan Stephen never picked up an instrument Stephen never picked up a bass um, Steve was I mean he was actually a pretty good drummer in a sort of Maureen Tucker sort of way and so but we were all big El- Velvets fans so we thought we'd, we'd do this kind of sister racing I don't know if we even sort of... It just turned out to be this sort of Sister Ray thing. I think afterwards I thought, oh, it's like Sister Ray. Yeah. It goes on for ages. It's really boring. And it's got loads of feedback in it. Which was done by Joy Division years later, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. We did it. So we were the only band of all time to sort of... have never... didn't rehearse or bother to write any songs for their first gig. Yeah, that was quite their a... first important gig. <laughs> yes, that was that was like you would have put thought, you know, where are they now? They did nothing, but they didn't. They all went on to great things. But didn't it was yeah, that the one that yeah. you did the twenty minute of improvisation yeah. on the on the Lord's Prayer? Yeah. And whose idea was that? It wasn't really an idea. I mean, it's only because. It's the only the Lord's Prayer because Susie started singing the Lord's Prayer halfway through through it because she'd run out of things to sing. <laughs> but obviously, we didn't know that's what we were doing. We didn't know that's what it was called when we started it. My God, it was free and easy. It became wasn't it? the Lord's Prayer by the end of the by the end of the song. <laughs> Which was good. So obviously that made everyone very excited. Did you all come off stage kind of buzzing with like that was brilliant? We're going to do this again. No, <laughs> no, we didn't. Um, I think it, it, Susie and Steve went off buzzing, thinking, now we're going to be the Banshees. Susie and the Banshees. Obviously, Susie was Susie. Spelled S-U-Z-I at the time. Um, so they went off to become the Banshees, and me and Sid went off to our own respective different things. I think there was sort of some idea that me and Sid were going to do this thing called Flowers of Romance. But then I found out that everybody... Everybody 
who was an early punk rocker, was in Flowers of Romance. We were all in it, so we never met or rehearsed or did anything. Yes. He just said, oh, do you want to be in the band? And I said, yeah, all right. Not telling me there's like, you know, 10 other people in it. <laughs> yeah. So then you were on a very short, short-term, short-lived punk band, The Models. Yeah. And it wasn't did... that short-lived. It was about two years, which at the time was a... That was a long time in those days. Yeah. Two years was a long time when you were 16. This is true, actually. Even a week is quite a long time, isn't it, really? Yeah. This yeah. is true. And did that... I mean, did did you put some more sort of... Obviously, two years, you would have sort of gone through a certain process of sort of rehearsing, trying to write material, putting yeah. something together. Yeah, we were caught in that kind of, like, punk falling apart, and us were, and we were a punk band, and it was like, kind of... It's just, I mean, I was very aware of the fact that this is just... Um, punk's not going anywhere, is it? It's finished. It's done what it's supposed to do, which is spark off lots of other things but you're not supposed to continue with it no it's not really it's, it's not really interesting enough to continue with it unless you're the Ramones and can make can make it work for yourself but we weren't the Ramones we weren't that good so um, I was very aware of just being by early 77 thinking I don't like this anymore it's shit now and I don't want to do it anymore and I want to do something else and I don't want to wear this bloody jacket anymore yeah, were you? Did you buy the outfit? By the way, the punk. Because yeah. I did the, the, the interview. I did with this guy from Eater, the lead singer, who's who's yeah. who's, um, who's just discovered the master tapes of the first ever recording, which should have been released, but they were all too stoned to um, to realise it hadn't been properly mixed. But it will be properly mixed in the summer. Um, yeah. But he said he really just hated it when he saw the audience outside. He just thought, "Oh my God, everyone's got that." The punk look now, which is not what he wanted at all, and found it quite. No, I, I didn't. I didn't buy that that outfit. I had other outfits because I've been going to Malcolm Vivian's shop for since I was thirteen. So um, I desperately believed in you know the power of fashion and the power of style, and I think what happened is that a lot of people got involved, most people got involved and didn't believe in that. And it was, it was like, and the, the, you know, the Sid look was a new, a new conformity that they can conform to. And it was, I mean, it was easy to do as well. Yes. It was quite straightforward, wasn't it? And it was, yeah, it was quite a masculine look really. So when did you meet Adam? Or had you already met I him? I, I think I met him about that time, but I, I didn't know him. You know, there was like I met him through Jordan. I met him at the Malcolm Vivian shop, and um, but he was doing this thing, Adam and the Ants, this which I, I went to see, and I thought were fucking rubbish. And then I, I because it was just Adam being actually completely out of control and not not giving the band a sort of chance to play, and so you couldn't really hear anything. And um, and it wasn't until a few years later, or about a year later, you know, I saw them again. I thought, oh, they're really good, really good songs. I mean, I thought the songs were good, and I, but I didn't think that I didn't think the band played them with the, uh, you know, gave it the sort of the the oomph and the excitement they should have had. They were a bit reserved. Yeah. 
Did it, um, was it the case then? Because he obviously had to have quite a major change of personnel at that stage. And they'd already done John Peel's session, hadn't they? And yeah. had sort of got, you know, quite a reputation. Did it feel strange kind of moving into the band, so to speak? No. No, it didn't feel strange because I hadn't followed the band. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't. In fact, I, you know, I avoided punk uh, at all costs. I mean, just steered clear of anything punk. And they were very much in that punk circuit, which I didn't even know existed anymore. Yes. And suddenly I just thought, you know, just my, my competitive, my, my sort of, fighting spirit oh you know this is like you always kind of need I, I think i always need a nemesis something to fight against and just right the adam and the ants audience are the thing i'm going to fight against which is completely insane <laughs> you've got already you've got a ready-made audience and you try and alienate alienate them that is exactly the opposite of what you're supposed to do but, um i think i think you know adam has been trying for so long and he was just, I think he was just up a, up, up a cul-de-sac, really, up a, up a no entry. Yes. Stuck, stuck with this sort of band, and it was it just wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't signed, it wasn't getting signed, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to go mainstream, it just wasn't. And I think Malcolm did it, really did him a favour. And you see, you see, I think he now sees what a favour that Malcolm did him inadvertently by just chucking him out of his own band. So yes. he was forced to do something else. Because well, up to then, I suppose they'd been very cult and very sort of almost a John Peel type of band, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. They had a big following. They had a big following, but no major label wanted to touch them. Yes, absolutely. No one liked them. And also they just thought, this is a dead-end band, it's going nowhere. You know, it was like, I suppose, sort of thing, you know, it was like the UK subs or something, you know. They were going nowhere, these bands, or the lurkers. <laughs> they were stuck in this ghetto, and they were just stuck in it. And it's like they, they sort of embraced it rather than... I think they just felt safe there. We've got this audience, and we'll just keep doing this, because it's actually quite easy. Yes. And sort of sitting down and thinking, we're not getting anywhere with this. And we're just rehashing the same old crap. Yeah. Uh, whereas we could, we could make a fresh start. Absolutely. And did, and at that stage, when, when you know, this is the sort of turn of the decade, um, Thatcher had got in in 79. So did it feel, because it was quite a different personnel, wasn't it? It was a completely different band. And you started writing with Adam at that stage. Did that, yeah. come, did that come together relatively well, because often, you know, through history, there's often been a, a songwriting partnership with various people from the Stones to the Beatles to the no, Smiths. No, just because just, I wasn't, I was coming into it fresh. To me, it was a brand new band. It was a brand new project. I, I mean, luckily, I liked his old songs, you know, and I wanted to keep playing them. I, I wasn't. Because he was, you know, he, when I met him the first time I ever met him, he said, well, I don't know if I want to continue. I don't even know if I want to be called The Ants anymore. I mean, it's not my favourite name, band name of all time, but, well, you know, you've, you've been working. You've, been, you've worked up a following. You've got these songs. The songs are great. You can't not do that. Because he said, oh, I don't know if I want to do any. I don't, I don't think I want to do any of the old songs. I said, oh, no, you've got to do them. They're brilliant, some of them. 
And um, you know, I sort of talked him into doing his own old songs. Yes. Um, and I, you know, like I said, I wasn't, I didn't think Adam Nance was a great name, but you've established it. So this is a thing that people find very difficult to do. And I think that's, you'd be mad throwing it away. Yeah. But I suppose with some artists, I mean, you know, my obsession with David Bowie, I realised all the stuff he did in the 60s, you know, you would sort of, you wouldn't have remembered any of it if it hadn't been for what he did in the 70s and onwards, because it was kind of a bit odd. So I suppose Adam had a little bit of that similar world of releasing various things and getting used to... I mean, he hadn't hadn't been trying as long as as David Bowie, because David Bowie had lots of, you know, the Anthony Newley thing and can't help thinking about me, the lower surge and all that. I'm still confused about the, the, the sort of... He did so many things... He was always working. He did so many things that I'm actually confused about how many bands he was in. <laughs> yes. And then I mean, he, did. he did do some good work. Wow. Did he? I thought he did the lower third stuff. I mean, I, I, I love Can't Help Thinking About Me and Bust Off and that. Yeah. And and then there was another one that was really good. Um, but then he started doing things that were like Love You Till Tuesday and London Boys and all that, which I didn't think was that great. Yeah, I know. It was very Anthony Newley and then a bit of novelty yeah. and then a bit of Lindsay Kemp stuff. It was really when Angie appeared and Tony DeFries and various other people. from Yeah, sort of, sort of focused it into being yes. more rock and roll. It was just more focused, didn't it? It's like with, um, I mean, I love The Man of Hell to Earth. I, uh, not The Man of Hell to Earth. Man of Soul the World. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't know. Was Angie involved in that? Because it's it's very rock and roll, isn't it? It's, it's very almost it's proto metal, isn't it? Yes, it's pretty. It's not commercial, especially side two, but they're classic songs, actually. So yeah, um, I mean, Man of the World is one of the greatest songs ever written. Yes, it was amazing, really. But I I think there's there's that that sort of um, debate, isn't there? There's like controversy about how involved was Bowie in that album. Because obviously, things like whips of a circle—it doesn't seem to me like something you can sit down and write. <laughs> yes, I don't know. And so the world is, and you know, President Saviour Machine and all that—they're songs. And but the... Whip for a Circle isn't—you know—it's a jam, really. Yes, the Broody, Broody Brothers—that was quite a song. Yeah, Beauty Brothers, Brothers is a song. Beauty Brothers isn't on the album, is it? That song, what's Beauty Brothers on? Is it on Hunky Dory? Oh, it might be actually. You're right. I think it's side yeah. two. Yeah, it's just the last song, isn't it, Hunky Dory? Yeah, that's amazing. Yes. So look, then with Adam, you did the first album, yeah. Kings of the Wild Frontier. Did that? Yeah. Did you feel like you were? Was this the honeymoon phase at this stage? You had, you know, you, you, you know. Did it all sort of? Did you feel like the stars had lined up? No. <laughs> No, I, I I wasn't sure what we were doing really. I just there's no kind of because obviously you know after it was, became successful, we were accused of like kind of just concocting this you know this hit formula. It's not a hit formula. It's a complete insane formula. It's 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 it's, it's not a recipe for pop stardom, is it? I mean, it's like um, the whole thing was just a complete mishmash of just about everything we just put everything in the pot that we liked yes really and did you um we didn't we didn't really think i didn't i wasn't thinking that this is going to be mainstream successful because i didn't know 
being 20 years old and well, how old I was, I didn't know what mainstream success meant. No. At that age, you're probably in your, almost your first band. You're probably just hoping to get a bit of cash to pay some some money, rent, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And did you, I mean, because did you also record some of that at Rockfields as well? In, in... We recorded, I think we recorded all of it at Rockfields except for King's Wrath Frontier, which we did in London. Yeah. But obviously, did you feel that there was a great potential, the the, the working relationship with the two of you and, and also the band? Yeah. yeah. Did you feel like there was something quite special happening? I, I, I felt that it was, you know, somebody who kind of just... What, it wasn't, I don't mean like whatever I came up with he liked, but it, it was someone who was willing to do something eccentric, you know, like... You know, we were both very much fans of, you know, the 70s and glam rock and, and people doing, like, really exceptional things. Like, like Virginia Payne is like nothing else when they brought it out, you know. Yeah. Uh, even things like this time, this town ain't big enough for both of us. Was just, it's just, it's bizarre, yet completely commercial at the same time. Yeah. You can you can probably write that thinking that was going to be a hit, but something that no, no, you couldn't. <laughs> you I'm know. going to have a hit the moustache, and then you know it just doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... it just it just worked, and no one knew why it worked. It just does. Yes, but then by by the se- your second album with with Adam Prince Charming, I mean this then is like it just goes mental, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. It, <laughs> I mean, it did does, it? It just it just goes mental. It really does go mental. That's a technical term. Um, I mean, when you were writing it, did you, you know, again, you know, I mean, did you sort of think actually this is pretty? You know, these songs are actually coming together incredibly well, and it feels like you know memorable stuff. Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, I didn't. I don't know if I consciously said that to myself. I was sort of I was happy with the way things. Going, I mean, there was a great deal of laughing that we did. We just like try and make ourselves laugh, and there's a lot of humour to it, as you probably noticed. Um, you know, the desperately trying to think of what, what can I, what can I do here that make Adam laugh? You know, I used to sort of think, think things like that. Yes, absolutely. And did the the image of the you know the band and Adam and then the videos, which obviously become so iconic, was that something that kind of developed really quickly? Because you know when you look at Bowie, you know especially in the seventies, he did one album a year for the whole decade. Yeah. Did he produce several albums, including Iggy Pop and the Lou Reed album you mentioned, and relocated, did lots of world tours, had lots of yeah. relationships. I mean, you in this ta- in this phase of your you know that. 80s. I mean, you were bringing out an album a year, touring, yeah, and yeah. sort of doing the whole rock and roll lifestyle, weren't you? Yeah, we were doing the rock and roll lifestyle. I mean, uh, you know, we went very, very fast from in the back of a van to to first class, first class with with bodyguards. It took about a year. <laughs> I, I do, I do remember thinking we. we in Tokyo, and I remember being in Adam. He had this massive penthouse suite, and I remember I actually said to him, "How did we get here?" I was looking out at Tokyo, thinking, "How did we get here?" 
literally 18 months ago, we were like, you know, listening to old records in my in my room at my mum's house in Harrow. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, you can only appreciate these things when you stop and you have to just stop and take stock. And even when you do do that, you just think, how did I get here? Am I really here? Is yes. it really happening? You think about a lot, is this really happening? Because it's like, it's like, these are the daydreams I would have at school during maths lessons. I mean, these, I mean, Adam and the were exactly the band I imagined. I didn't have the pirate elements. I didn't daydream that. It was, Adam brought those in. And it's like, but, you know, we had two drummers. It was sort of glam, glam rock, obviously. Um, film soundtrack, John Barry, and Morricone, and glam rock, and two drummers, and some sort of bizarre image that I hadn't in my daydream really formulated. No, but an incredibly... Yeah, good-looking and charismatic chap jumping around, which was um, which is kind of what yeah. you need. I mean, he was no, he was no shy kid, was he? But then no, he was no, sh- at, no shy kid. At that, <laughs> at that stage, I mean, because there were a few bands that every time they were, you know, they were just headlines, weren't they? There was the Jam, there was obviously Adamant. Did you have that kind of yeah. rivalry that T Rex and Slade have had? You know, had in some you know retrospective. No, they didn't. They hated each other at the time, didn't they? So uh, they were quite competitive. But did you have a competitive element? No, no we didn't have. We didn't have the Spandau versus Durant. There wasn't really anybody like us. So we didn't. I remember that we we absolutely loved Madness, and they were they were sort of you know basically our rival for sales and our rival. I don't know, were they the same audience or sort of? I know we, I never felt that we had any rivals. No. Everyone was so different from what we were doing. I think... I, think... I mean, Spandau, Spandau and Duran were sort of, you know, were sort of very similar, and similar in some ways. I mean, there's, there's five of them, and it's sort of very roxy, isn't it? It's weary, roxy light. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> no, I, I personally never felt... Our only rivals were Bow Wow Wow, and we sort of trounced them very early on. So we didn't, we didn't really feel we had any rivals. Yeah, I think Bow Wow Wow felt much more manufactured, didn't it? Somehow, I don't know, but they did feel like they weren't quite um, so. Well, I don't know. I'm not. I don't know much about Bow Wow Wow apart from the singles. I was never a big fan. But you worked with the same producer, Chris Hughes, on both of those first yeah. two albums. Was that Im- yeah. an important aspect to the to the sound of those albums? Yes, because we. Um, what happened was just to get he owed uh, Adam owed his record company do it. Uh, one more single or something like that. So we had to get out of the contract by just doing one more single, which was Car Trouble. And Chris was the person that they picked. We didn't know him. And uh, that's who turned up to do the single. And so we stuck with him. Yeah. Well, well, you know, because I haven't spoke to a lot of people. The producer's often quite a critical part, you know, part of the... Whole, it certainly is, yeah. You know, it certainly is. Because I do remember... It's, sort of... it's because I had no studio experience and Adam had very little. So we needed someone to, to, to you know, help us make up, put our ideas into practice. We just couldn't do it. I didn't have the technical knowledge. I remember thinking... I remember um, 
I think before we met Chris or during that period, we were talking about this Burundi thing. I remember walking down the street with Adam going, and he was going. There was a there was a uh, an African musical on in the West End at the time called Ippy Tombi, right? Which neither of us had seen, but it's that had it featured African drummers, and and Adam sort of said, "Oh yeah, well why don't we just get the the drummers from Ippy Tombi to come and do you know come and do the single?" And, and at that point, I thought I was just sort of mortified. I was just thinking, I don't know how to do that. And now, obviously, I can look back and you go, well, you phone them up, you find out what their agent are, you get them, you know, you simply book studio their time, you tell them where to go, they will turn up, you tell them what to do, and you record it. Yes. Then, then I had no idea how to do it now. It just seems easy. Hmm. It just, I know, it's kind of casual. I did an interview with um, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull, who was producing... Right. The Steel Eye Span record, which was, I think, quite a big one. This, yeah. And um, they were doing one single, uh, one track on it. They need a saxophone player. And he went, oh, actually, I know David Bowie. I've got his number. <laughs> I'll just, I'll ask David if he's available and he could come down in the afternoon and just, just do the saxophone. This was the song To Know Him Is To Love Him, which was written by Phil Spector. And he just came down yeah, here, I know, yeah. and he just played it and said, oh, thanks. And I don't think he even got paid because he said... The kind of the anecdote was that decades later, he, you know, Ian bumps into Dave and he mentions it, and and David said, "Oh, right, I, you know, I still need to send you a bill for that, don't I?" And we and they laughed in that showbiz way, but you know, and it was that just show like, was back, back slapping. Yeah, oh, and then, uh-huh. David said, "No, really." <laughs> I think at that stage, I think Ian just went, "Oh God, you've got shiny bright teeth." You've been to the dentist, yeah. haven't you? Um, mm. Anyway, enough about David's teeth. Um, yeah. So when you wrote, well, when you recorded the the singles, you know, Prince Charming and Standard Deliver, did you think, did you have that moment? You thought, God, we've got fairy dust on this. This is yeah, kind of... did actually. But those two, um, I think we did we did Standard Deliver first. I think no, I can't remember. I think we wrote Prince Charming first. And that was quite, it wasn't easy to do. I mean, it was, it, it was just um, desperately thinking, what should we do now? Oh, right, let's do the opposite of what we've done before, which is another thing you're not supposed to do in the pop world. And it's like, instead of loads and loads of drums, we'll just have one drum, you know. Yes. And, uh, and uh, then we just came up with this sort of, you know, whatever it was, Maori chant thing, and then put some key changes in it. Uh, I, I think originally it was before the royal wedding, and I think we had sort of our, our eye on some sort of, you know, cash-in. I think it was going to be called Bonnie, Bonnie Prince Charlie at the time. Right. And we thought, oh, yeah, people love this. They'll buy loads of copies because of the royal wedding. But we, it didn't end up being Bonnie Prince Charlie. Charlie. Yes, no, that would have been. That was probably That'd a good. Been naff, actually. <laughs> it would have been. Yeah. I, I think we. I think we thought it was naff actually after after a bit of consideration. Yeah, and did you enjoy making? Because you were really not the first people doing videos, but you were pretty much up there doing these quite elaborate kind of stories. Did you enjoy that process? Uh, no, I, I hated it. To be honest, I, I kind of thought, well, can't you get someone else to do this? Um. I really have to be here. Um, 
No, I, I hated the video making process, to be honest. It's hard, bloody work. Yes. I, I didn't feel it was very, it didn't feel very creative. Yeah. I, I felt at the, at the end of a long day, I, I felt I didn't feel that we'd done something personally. Yeah. Well, we had, but I, I didn't, it wasn't a thing that I really wanted to, you know, it didn't, I think I was just so self conscious at the time and not really, I don't know, not really a performer, not really comfortable with performing. Yeah. Did you, um, were you enjoying the touring at that stage? Uh, at that stage, no, I was hating the tour. I was hating all before. I mean, I'm much better about it now. At the time, it was the bane of my life. Yes. And with... Just, the... I mean, just caused great depression and, you know, soul-searching and me leaving the band once a week. <laughs> God, that is bad, isn't it? Was it... Was it yeah. kind of, what was it... Was it confidence or was it just kind of you just emptiness? Uh, a lot of it was um, possibly looking back. I can say it, it was sort of confidence. I didn't feel I didn't feel confident on stage. I didn't feel also I wasn't very interested in it. I didn't get anything out of it really. Yes, I didn't. I didn't feel you know that. I, I didn't feel a sense of anything i just 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 wanted to get off really so was it just I, I just didn't i just i just found it really boring yeah did you ever try and tour america yeah we did we toured america a lot because that's one of the things i've noticed doing interviews with bands from the uk especially mm. the 80s bands that the one thing that kind of breaks them is often when they mention going to america and then they often say and then we came back and split up because we just couldn't cope anymore that was kind of we couldn't cope no that didn't happen to us but i understand why it does happen to people yeah it just becomes too much and your head's just full of everything and it's too and no one ever very usually very young, you know, early twenties. It becomes too much, and you, you just—it's too huge to deal with the pressures of it, the responsibility of it. Yeah. And what was your management like? Did they did they kind of give you any guidance at that stage? No, they never do. They never do. And they, they never. You know, they did the deals, and they, you know, but they didn't really kind of ever take you aside and say it's going to be like this and it's going to be like that. When I saw a thing with the Kardashians and they were going, some of the younger Kardashians were kind of inheriting the family business or whatever the family business is, you know, and um, they went to a PR company and the PR company said, right, we're going to do a mock interview now and I'm going to interview so you, interview you so you get some practice at it. And I thought, that's fucking amazing that's what they should do with every artist they, they don't you just do the interview and it's like and they actually explain to them you know the point of this interview the point of press is basically you're selling things and you're trying to sell the tv show or the fragrance or whatever it is they were doing at the time so they would have said to us right the do you know what the point of this is and you go no i don't know what the point of it is you know it's to make you more famous and give you visibility, you know, um, 
hopefully leading to more sales. This is the point of doing interviews. This is the point of promotion. Yes. Which I hadn't, I, it, I took me a while to suss out that that is in fact what it is. If they just told us that. Yes. And did, did anybody, I mean, at that stage, I mean, you were selling massive records. I mean, when, you know, record yeah. sales were huge. Did that feel quite overwhelming at all? And, and no. sort of. No, because you're in the eye of the, eye of the storm, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, we didn't really, I, I mean, I, I didn't really go anywhere apart from the studio, Sony Records, the inside of a car, and the inside of, you know, and, you know, and home. Apart from that, I didn't really have a chance to go anywhere else. Yeah. Because then, then, you know, the following year, God, things are moving fast for you at this stage, aren't yeah. they? I mean, yeah. the band is radically altered, isn't it? And and yeah. major personnel changes. Did that, yeah. how did that affect you? It made things a lot easier, actually, because I used to spend, I spent all my time dealing with the gripes and, you know, the gripes and, gripes of the band you know and it's like oh god it's like it's like what what it was like keeping like spinning you know those sort of spinning plate geezers they put a plate on a stick yes and they keep it spinning and it's like running up and down kind of keep all plates plates spinning and you spend no time on yourself or or, or doing or trying to have a life of your own you're, you're so too involved dealing with other people's lives like your band members. Mm, yes. I think this is where Bowie did quite well, really, wasn't it? He did um, keep moving it. But even he, even he did, he thought, I'm not doing this anymore. But it's, it was different for him because it, it, was, it was his band he, you know, and he was the... Uh, he was... It, it was David Bowie and the Spiders, wasn't it? Yes. Well, it was Adam and the Ants, the same sort of thing. But Yeah. When it came to sort of doing that, that moment between those um, Prince Charming and friend of all foe did did was there a kind of a meeting with the band to say or no. Were... no I was I was I, I was just ex so exhausted with it all because it was all very well because it's like Adam was sort of separate because he's Adam and then there was the ants there was the three ants and then there was me it was sort of semi ant. Yes, Uber ant, and I really. Was, I was the go. I was the go between. I was the interface between Adam and the ants. And that became just too much. It just became exhausting. Yes, because I know that it, 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 it decided it didn't want to talk directly to them. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. So I've got to do it, have I? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, it's a big. It's not, I didn't really sign up for this go-between thing I just sort of played guitar and write songs I didn't want to be you were counselor and politician and you, know, you, the, you were the line manager weren't you really the line was, what's a line manager I don't know what that is I think that's in a company you have somebody who's a bit senior and they have a few people underneath them and it kind of has that so you were the you were probably the line manager for the rest of the band who had to yeah. you know because obviously yeah. you you were on songwriting credits, they weren't, and also you know yeah. you were talking to Adam and they weren't. So <laughs> yeah, uh, well I don't know what a line manager does, but it, yeah, maybe yes, yeah, sort of yeah. 
You were there. Slightly more, slightly more senior. Yeah. But you were a bit more senior. Did they, did they kind of get told? Actually, that's the end of that. The ants. The ant, yeah. The ant pit is gone. How did yes, they cope with? Did. How did they? Did you tell them or Adam? No, I'd be joking. I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> Would they have beat you up? No. It's just a difficult, difficult, um, a difficult conversation to have, and I didn't want to have it. Yes. Yeah. Who broke it to them then, Adam? I sp- no, I suppose the management did. Right. Somebody did. It yeah. wasn't me. <laughs> Sounds like a scene from The Godfather, really. But then, when you got the, when you sort, you know, that got cleared up, and then you were working on the third album, did you feel just elated and like this is? Yeah. Yeah. Good. So easy. Good times. Just having to having to deal with. Uh, I mean, difficult or so Adam could be. He wasn't being being particularly difficult. And even if he was, I was only dealing with one difficult person instead of four difficult people. Um, yeah, it was great, actually, the Friend or Foe album. Yes. And did, um... I, was really, I, was, I was really sort of energised in that album, because I was remember, I think... Oh, no, no, that's right. It's just that we were... When we worked on the demos, we worked on the I I would work I would rehearse. We were rehearsing for the Prince Charming tour, and I was rehearsing for the Prince Charming tour, knocking off at seven and going straight to the studios to work on demos for the for the Friend or Foe album, which we didn't know was Friend or Foe at the time. So, I, I mean, I don't know how I did it. I really don't know how I did it. I was sort of existing on like five six hours sleep. But I mean, I remember being bored at rehearsals because it's just like going for the same shit, and it's and being and being really excited about getting down to the studio and doing something new. Yes, and did um... I mean my my adre- I think my, my adrenaline about doing doing new things was what what kept me kept me going, and it was always like, and then like the next day, thinking, oh, I've got to play ant music again. Why have I got to play ant music again? Because <laughs> I was at the time sort of like, well, we recorded it, and that's what it is. Why do I have to play it now? Right. Were you a bit more like a Brian Wilson? Would you just prefer to have just done the stuff yeah. and given it to someone yeah. else and said, that's just not my bag, I'm just going to be in the studio writing and being... Yeah, I, at the time I would have much preferred that. That's that's sort of what I wanted to be. I just thought, you know, so many times I was thinking, why don't you just get another guitarist? Just get somebody else to play guitar. Yeah. And then, you know, he, 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 this guy would get, I don't need to know him or speak to him or do anything. Have any. Then you could go and rehearse with this guitarist and then, yeah, exactly. So I wouldn't have anything to do with the live side of it. Yeah. Because like you said, I mean... I, I, would, I, would, I would merely at some point go to the, par- go to the London party. I know. Sips champagne. That's as close. As, that, that's yeah. That's as close I was, as I would get to it. Yeah. That was that. That was my idea anyway. And did you? And 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 how was Adam coping with this kind of mega stardom? Because at that time, you know, he is the face and this, mm. and everything. Was he holding it together, or was he sort of? Yeah, he was holding it. He was holding it together quite pretty well, really. Really. Um, I can't see that it went to his head because it was all. It, it, 
he'd already he was already a egomaniac before we saw before we started and he didn't get any worse in mm. fact he probably got better because you know the frustration of um you know desperate to prove things to, to, to people and it's like he didn't really have to prove himself anymore yeah and also it was all just getting there it was all about proving yourself proving yourself proving yourself and I said well I've done it now I can just do it. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. Yeah. They can see it because they can see it happening. And how did you, because on this one, friend or foe, you, you take kind of the producer role. And I remember talking to Fast Eddie from Motorhead, who they did two albums which went really well with the producer. Then they had a bit of a bust up with the producer, or the drummer yeah. did. So then it was like, oh, Fast Eddie, you can do this. And he said that was not a good thing, really, because he, he had to try and control the band and, you know, uh, even if there was only two members, it was still not easy. Had did you sort of find being the producer a, relatively okay, or was that quite yeah, difficult? Yeah, I it, I, no, I found I found it. Um, I found it very okay, actually, because as the producer and the artist, all at the same time, there's no one to argue with. You're in, you are in, in complete. Uh, you, 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 it's just you're completely in control. There's no one there to disagree. Yes, which is which is probably quite nice. Yes, it is very nice. It is good. I mean, at, at that time, you know, suddenly, you know, we by then, you know, the charts were filled with people like you know Sade, and there was that sort of jazz sound of Working Week yeah. and Loose Ends yeah. and. And Robin Miller, who was a producer, was kind of quite a hot shot at that time. And then you had that Trevor Horn production with ABC and Frankie and Spandau Ballet yeah. and and Duran Duran. Did you were you sort of kind of aware of those kind of changes yeah. that were happening? We were, we were just aware of kind of everything, really. You couldn't you couldn't not be aware. I mean, you, I mean, I don't think that you have to compete. It's probably best not to compete with these people who are doing things that you can't do. You know, uh, we couldn't do that. We couldn't do soft soul or jazz. And we didn't, we didn't want to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we we're aware of everything that happened. But that doesn't mean that we have to do it. Yeah. Absolutely. Because when you work on the next the next album, Strip... Which yeah. is, which is, and you work at this stage. You've got the famous Phil Collins, who in the eighties was everywhere, wasn't he? Yeah. What? Whose yeah. idea was it to bring in Phil? I think it was Adams. I mean, strange enough, there was an Adam. Uh, there was an Adam. There was a. There was an album that we like called "Is the Sonic Going On" by Frida from ABBA. Oh yes. I know there's something going on that one. We we just love that. We just loved it. It's like it doesn't. It didn't mean that we loved everything about it, but generally, you know, the kind of there was a sparse, you know, there was a sparseness to it, and obviously the drum sound was, was brilliant, and uh, that's why we got him involved. Yeah, he hadn't yet, hadn't yet become, you know, the highest selling artist of all time or whatever he is. You know, and it's just. He hadn't, he hadn't really become this sort of superstar yet. Yeah. Still, I think he'd just done Hello and Must Be Going, and that was that was huge. But 
hadn't really sort of he hadn't done the second album yet. I don't think. But anyway, he was st- he was still moderately. Um, oh, face open, value open. wasn't it? I think it was face value that everyone had, didn't they? Was it? Yeah, isn't it got, and that's the one with against all odds and stuff on it. And Possibly, yeah. I can't remember. And you work with Frieda as well on this album, don't you? Yeah. Was that kind of an exciting? Yeah. I mean, by then you must be meeting all the stars. Did that feel quite surreal? Thinking only a few years before you were just, you know, playing smaller clubs. No, no, I got used to it by then. <laughs> and Frieda only came in for a couple of hours, and she didn't really speak English, so it wasn't really. I didn't really kind of interact with her that much. Yes. But then that album, you had to do a massive American tour, didn't you? Yeah. Did that, was that sort of, was that beginning to, you? was that quite hard work for you? Yeah, it's bloody hard work. It's bloody hard work for anybody. Yeah, yeah and I was beginning to doubt the value of touring at the time. I, I think I can see now. I mean, now it's 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 essential, really. And I was always thinking of a way that there must be or something a way of doing this without touring. I mean, there, there were a few eyes that had never played live. Like Harry Nilsson had never played live. Um, and I was really very against playing live. Yeah. Which is and cool. I was sort of hoping. One of the reasons I was so enthusiastic about. Videos, I thought maybe this would put an end to live music. Yes, well, I suppose that was quite, um, yeah, I suppose it was a bit like, yes, MTV was kind of massive at this stage. Yeah. Absolutely massive. And did you, I mean, because when when you were bringing out Viva La Rock, which was, um, I mean, that, because that's the one, is that what Adam plays at Live Aid, isn't it? Yeah. Were you, yeah. were you were you at Live Aid? Yes. Yeah, yes. Right. Yes. I, I managed to get a, for a ticket for that, which was exciting. So, what was your memories of the Live Aid experience? Um, our strangest memory is that we were just about to go on, and I desperately, I thought, desperate, I desperately needed a cigarette, which is really weird because I didn't smoke at the time, and. Um, um, I, it was it was all a kind of um, a bit of a blur, really, because everything it was so. It wasn't disorganised, but it, it was you know everything sort of just they tried to get everything to run clockwork, you know, like clockwork, and so many acts on, and so many egos there, and, and you know, and and it's just every, it, it you just feel like you're being pushed from, from pillar to post, really, and. Um, and you think, well, that's the spirit of the day, and I'll just moan. moan. But, um, but I always thought this is a day I'll never forget, but in fact it's turned into a day I can't remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, I mean, it was a bit of a blur. I can't, you know. It was a complete blur, complete blur. It was a bit of a funny one. And then with that particular album, you were working with Tony Visconti, the famous Tony yeah. Visconti. What was that? Tony was, that a, was that a good experience, working with him? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Tony's amazing. He's one of our heroes. Yes. That doesn't mean we kowtow to everything he said. Um, I think Tony's quite used to that. But, and one, you know, there's a lot of 
it wasn't really fraught. There were a few fraught things, but you know. Yes. It was all right. I mean, I think I think he did, you know. And uh, it's got a strange experience of him saying, "I want you to play more guitars on this." I said, "More, Toady? It's like it's getting a bit just overblown." No, no, no. Put more guitars on it. And there's me, the kind of you know, the guitarist and. You know, being the voice of reason, and the guitarist is hardly ever the voice of reason. <laughs> yes, the, the voice of trying to be moderate. So when you when you finish that album, yeah. you, you have a is there a break with you know the band at that stage? Yeah, the, uh, the band we had at the time. Yeah, because we didn't. Did we do a tour. I can't remember. I think we did a tour. I think it was a fairly uneventful, un, uninteresting tour. One of us kind of like, can't tell you what happens on it. Yeah. Nothing really happens on it. But just one of those standard tours. Yeah. But then one of the, the, the people of the 80s, alongside people like Prince, Madonna, Michael Jackson, and Morrissey, you work with Sinead yeah. O'Connor. How did that develop? Yeah. Or how did that happen? Um, because I knew her manager, Faulkner O'Kelly. And he just asked me to go down and play guitar on it on the first album. Yes. Which I did. I mean, there was no nothing compares to you or anything like that. And I, I, I did Mandinka and a few other things on that album. And uh, I can't say I, I didn't. It's not that I thought no more about it because I thought I thought this. I think I thought this was very special artist. I wasn't sure if it was a very special album. But it's a very special artist, and then uh, so I didn't. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't involved in the touring in that. And then it was later on that she did nothing to compare to you. And then, then I did that big America, that huge world tour with her. Yeah. And how would it? How did it compare working after with Adam? How did it work with Sinead O'Connor? Uh, I can't say. You, it's like they're not comparable. <laughs> they're not really the same thing at all. That was better in some ways, worse in others. Yes, it's, they're completely different people. It's like that's like comparing people. I just wondered if it was a very like, wow, this is a completely different vibe and there's a completely different audience and, you know, the times have changed and suddenly, you know, you, uh, you don't... You, yes, you were... yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was a completely different audience and times have changed, but I was kind of aware of it and it was like, it wasn't like, oh, why isn't this like 1981? Well, because it's not 1981. No. But, but, but she, at that point, is absolutely on the zeitgeist, isn't she? She sort yeah, of, there, there was, she, I, mean, she, I mean, she caused the zeitgeist. Yeah, because there was a few people, like there was um, Suzanne Vega, Tracy Chapman, Michelle Schott. I mean, she wasn't so big. And then Sinead O'Connor came along and it was like, blimey, those three, four artists really did shape quite a... Sinead, Sinead had, I think, more power than any of those. Yes. She, she was, it was, more, it was. It was much more intense. Yes, and you wrote on the second album, "Jump in the River" with yeah. her. Did yeah. you did you bring the music to that, and she did the lyrics? Yeah, yeah. I think I did a demo, and she and she kind of. I um, I didn't play on it, which is she didn't ask me to play on it. It's just sort of odd. Um, <laughs> but I just I just wrote it, so. 
Yes. But I guess by then her, I mean, I guess the record company could see, you know, potentially massive, massive potential for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when then the 90s came along, we'd obviously had the rave period and ecstasy and then we had grunge and then, you know, Adam comes back with his, this is the fourth solo album. Did yeah. you, did you um, suddenly have a, you know, a phone call to say, look, I need to be back in the studio. We've got another album to do. Yeah, I think I did. I must have done. <laughs> I must have done. You know, um, we just started. We started the same process, right? As we always did. You know, just sort of um, demoing, coming up with ideas. And he was in LA at this time, but you know, I was sort of preparing ideas and he came over and we put them together and that was became wonderful yes were you still in love with music at that stage uh very much so yeah oh, oh that's yeah because i know from I don't know, if I, in, I don't know if i was in love with the business but i don't know anybody who is really yeah and when you sort of then recorded persuasion this was with bernard edwards who was you know, the famous guy from... Did, did, we, we, did we do Persuasion before Wonderful? Oh, you did. Us? You did it before yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I think I was trying to do Persuasion in between the tour. I, mean, I was on the Sinead tour while doing Persuasion. I don't know how I managed to be in two places at the same time, but in fact, I didn't most of the time. But on the odd sort of day off that we would have, I would fly to New York and work on Persuasion. Yes. So I wasn't very hands-on with it. I thought I didn't even hear it most of the time. Yeah. Did you... And then you kind of, by the mid-90s... Yeah. You did wonderful, and this is kind of the height of Britpop. Was Adam sort of aware that it was kind of hard to to still be kind of rivaling the people like Blur and Oasis, or was it just not... Well, we weren't blow. We weren't trying to rival them. Don't we? we weren't anything like them. It's not the same market. It's not the same music. Um, there's no, there's no. We, you know, it's completely different. So, you know, we weren't like great fans of them either. I think Adam really liked Blur. I didn't like. I've never really liked Blur. Um, I've never really liked Oasis. Yes, no, but then I don't. I don't dislike either of them, but they, they they leave me unexcited. In fact, I was watching that, trying to watch that, you know, creation stories or it's called that movie. Yes, and you think, okay, it's sort of going along in a twenty-four hour party people sort of way, and um, I said we must be getting to some sort of climax. Something's going to happen halfway through, and it's like and he discovers Oasis. And he goes to some pub and sees Oasis. And it's sort of like, well, is this it? These sort of five blokes in shirts. It's it's, it's hardly Starman, is it? No, this is not Starman. No. He's not wiggling his <laughs> finger at the camera. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's, it's not. It is sort of... I mean, I'm sure, you know, it's, it's about the age you are. But I can't imagine people going, wow, I want to look like these blokes in shirts, in check shirts. Why would you ever <laughs> want to look like that? 
Yes, I know. It's, this sort of, it's just these, you know, men who work at Halfords, and it's just, um, how is this going to excite anybody? But it, obviously it did. It caught a moment, didn't it? It caught a yeah. moment. And that, when you were doing Wonderful, you worked with the great Baz Bora, who was who was kind of part of that kind of psychobilly scene, and it was also Morrissey's yeah. great guitarist. I think he still is with, and he was in the Polecats. Yeah. Was that yeah. um, how did you, or were you the one who did not discovered him but brought him on board? I, I don't know. Well, I don't know how he knew Baz. He was just a friend of ours, and we were planning to use him in the band, and um, and I thought we thought. Because for the first time we would use the band that we would we would then we would record the album with the band who would then go on to do the tour with, which we'd never really done before. So, and it was not it was nice working with other guitarists. Although I must say he wasn't there all the time. I did do most of it, and we did do some bits. Yes. So we managed to get this sort of you know guitar thing going between us. But most of it was me. Yeah. And had your style changed much over those decades? Because obviously you'd been playing music for a long yeah, time. Yeah, I, th I think it was, you know, I, um, obviously my sort of raucous punk feedback style had, had sort of been sublimated to a certain extent and was trying to do other things. Um yeah, I mean, it wasn't, you know, you know, on stage, I could sort of go back to that. But it, I, I, I don't know, I didn't really, I didn't really, I wanted to do something else, a bit more sort of musical and intricate and clever. Yes. Were, were guitarists like Robert Fripp or Mick Ronson, were they people yeah, like, who, who you kind of got influenced by? Yeah, well, Mick Ronson, Mick Ronson certainly is my, my guitar hero. It's the person I wanted to be, you know, one of the first person... He's the person who influenced me to, to play guitar. And um, I didn't know, I, I still don't know anything about King Crimson or like that, but, you know, Robert Fripp, I loved from, uh, you know, from Heroes, Beauty and the Beast, you know, playing on Heroes. But I was aware of him because he did, he did that no pussyfooting thing with Brian Eno. Yes. Which I actually quite liked. Yes. Did you, I mean, at that stage... When did when did your sort of last kind of work with Adam happen? Was it around Wonderful or did you? Yeah, I just wonder what the. I think it was later on that we were trying to do demos for this for that album, Gunner's Daughter, which later became Gunner's Daughter. Um, but I mean, it was he was just out to lunch and impossible impossible to work with him by that time. His mental state was just collapsing. Yes. So this is actually, this kind of, that got shelved, didn't it, that particular project? Or did it come out? No, no, it came out years later. It came out years later. Yes. Was Adam, at that stage, I mean, did you sort of recognise a sort of a problem that was happening? Yes, definitely, yeah. Because he'd had the problem on the wonderful tour, but then he got better, and it, it comes and goes. Yes. Was the first time you saw it or started to notice it, was it quite frightening? Yeah. Yeah. Very serious. 
but I thought, I don't know what I thought. I can't remember what I thought. Um, I was advised by a very high level kind of mental health official saying, look, he's not coming back from this. This is, this is, I mean, they just sort of took me aside. One person particularly took me aside and said, I don't think this guy is coming back from this ever. You know, trust me, I do this every day. Um, so that was uh, sobering. Yes, it must have been horrendous, actually. It was horrendous. It was, what do I do now? What do I do? <laughs> God. <laughs> yes, did you have a quick look on Wikipedia and think, my God, this is... Because it, is it bipolar? Yeah, like... bipolar. Right. But also, I mean, bipolar is never just one thing. It's not flu. It, it, it sort of morphs and... I think there's sort of like bits of schizophrenia in there as well. Depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, paranoid. I mean, it's all, it's all there. It's all there. You know, as, as bad as it can get, really. Yes. My God. That's a tough one to work through, though, isn't it? Blimey. Yeah. And, it's, you know, the police are involved quite often. <laughs> it's just, you know, so it gets pretty serious. Yeah. And then what happens, I mean, after that project not happening, do you then sort of think, what do I do now? Yeah. And then, because, you you know, you're still sort of got a lot of decades to go. I mean, so what happens, I mean, do you start trying to work on solo projects? No, I didn't. I, didn't, I, I never wanted to. So I, I'm not very confident in doing a solo project. Well, I can't sing for start. Uh, now I just started, um, a, a period of frantic inactivity, really, and I just—that's that's when I moved to the country. Because yes. I think I was just—I was actually just burnt out. Yeah. And I, I just—I don't know if I wanted to retire, but I just thought I, it was. I was burnt out, and I just wanted to wanted to sort of rest, really. Yeah. And I had this I had this new relationship, and you know, wanted to. I mean, settle down was too. And I think she always wanted me to settle down, but settle down was was too. It wasn't settled down, but I wanted to take a rest because it had been bloody hard up until then, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And then, because you do a musical combo called The Wolf Men. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did, was that kind of a, um, a sort of a satisfying experience? Because that was with members of... I mean, of... Music, musically it was a satisfying experience, but really to take it on, the band would have to do gigs. I didn't want to do any gigs. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to go back and do club gigs. I wasn't going to go and do stadiums. I wasn't going to, I just, uh, at that point, I was like, no live work at all. Yes. Which was, um, yeah. So does that mean that, you know, for the last decade, you've just been kind of just seeing what, not floating, but so, you know, just... Well, I mean, I mean the last thing I did was just before, just before the whole COVID thing was like, I did a month's tour with Shakespeare's sister. I actually played guitar on that. I actually went out on stage and played guitar on stage. Right. Yeah, well, that, that was a good experience. Yes. And I hadn't been on stage for probably about 20 years or something. 
It's never. I mean, that it never changes. It's always the bloody same. <laughs> you, you know, because I do see your Instagram feed. You do have the most amazing guitar collection, don't you? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, is guitars your main love? Yeah. Uh, well, the, the, you know, apart from if I had a relationship with someone, they would be my main love. But um, guitars, clothes, music, books, you know, just every, it's just everything's my main love, you know. Not television particularly. But no. Absolutely. Film, films, you know, all all forms of creativity is my, my, my main love. Yeah, absolutely. And did you, um, I mean, because of doing that work with Shakespeare's sister, are you somebody that gets called on occasionally to do the... Yes. Yeah, I, I, I am. Um, but, you know, we've shut with lockdown. Nothing, nobody's doing anything. Mm. Yeah, I know that is that is quite a depressing feeling. Did you? I mean, with the Adam experience, I mean, obviously you had a lot of top, top ten hits and big, you know, chart success. Did that sort of manage? Did that sort of give you the sort of the ability to sort of not retire, but financially kind of feel like okay, it's okay. I'm not. I'm not going to be living on the streets. No. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, it's okay. I'm, I'm not going to be living on the streets. That is good. Otherwise, you know, well. Yeah, but otherwise I'd be, I mean, I just don't know how people survive during lockdown. It just can't work. Yeah, I know. It's a tricky one, isn't it? It's a tricky, it is a tricky one. And, and thank God I'm not in that uh, position. I don't know what I'd do. I think most people are slightly panicking and looking at September as the, as the sort of let's get some dates out there or do a performance in our kitchen and hopefully get some people to throw some money at us. Yeah, I mean, I know I've been something, but it's like I've been watching like Toy Wilcox and Robert Fripp, you know, and it's just, you know, it's always funny and it's always fun, but I don't know what they're going to, apart from stops their Sunday from being boring. I'm not sure that that's going to re revive Toya's career. I mean, Robert seems to be, it did all right with King Crimson. Yes, I think they've got some dates lined up for in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. yes. I know they're quite mesmerising, actually, for twenty seconds. But um, I don't know. <laughs> no, I completely. I love Robert Fripp. I completely respect Robert Fripp. Although I, I don't know any King Crimson, and what I've heard, I haven't really. Not that I think I, I must put this on. I must play this again. Yes. Yeah. Have you? Anyway, I just sort of, I, I admire it from a sort of technical point of view. Think, oh, that's really good sound. And how does he do that? Yes, absolutely. Did you have you yeah. ever been tempted to to write a book or archive your kind of musical? I have been, I, yeah, but I I don't I don't know what the end is yet. No, this is true. Have you written it? No. Are you writing it? Tried, but I don't know what I'm writing about. I don't. There might, there's got to be a conclusion to it, and I I haven't got one because yeah. I'm not dead. No, this is true, which is, which is, I'd write it before you are dead, by the way. Um, yeah. Because John Peel had that problem. I think he'd, he he didn't do a backup and he lost it and then he died. And it was like, oh, that was a bit of a shame, really. Yeah, that's really stupid. Tries to back up. You Everyone knows that. Yeah, I know. That was the early days when, you know, people... Oh, uh, well, right. 
taking but a chance. We thought he was backing up, and it didn't do it. It didn't. I know. It's terrible. I mean, with all the, the 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 kind of wisdom and experience you've had, what if you could have said some advice to a younger self starting out on that kind of creative path? Is, is there something that you would say? Look, the, these are a couple of bullet points that I would say do or yeah, don't I do. Yeah, I probably would have said. Um, don't worry, you can do it. Don't keep doubting yourself. Not as hard as you think. Well, mm. it, it is fucking hard, but you, you just happen to be born with an innate ability to be able to do it. Um, so don't worry so much about. Don't worry about so much about every, everything. And you know, look, people do like you. And I would have said all those things. Basically, just don't fucking worry about everything. Yes. Was it kind of in your character to worry about everything? Yeah, I think so. Not what? Yeah, yeah. What's going to happen? Just not knowing what's going to happen. I hate not knowing what's going to happen next. Yes, well, it is hard. It's going to be all right. Are we doing the right thing? It's like you know, it's just the right single. Does it read a remix? Should we put out the other single? Yeah. Did you? I mean. Did it come, when you look at it, did it all feel like it came a bit too easy when you were doing that, uh, the kind of early years, you know, for the first three, four albums? No. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't easy. Yes. Was no, the... it was a con- constant, constant struggle. Yeah. But the the work... And also the kind of the success just must have, you know, like having number one album singles, you know, follow up, you know, getting into the top, you know, or well, number two, you know, just is that kind of intensity? I mean, which I remember a band like the Smiths, you know, they had five years, you know, it was 24-7 and eventually the yeah. whole thing exploded. And, and most, you know, bands are a bit like that with... Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think that's what happened to us. It was, you know, it is 24-7. It is very hard. Now I've kind of moved to what is essentially kind of suburbia and I sort of sort of rural suburbia, right? Suddenly kind of started meeting people who are not in that world and uh, trying to explain to them that it's not like your job. I don't get to go home. I don't get to sleep at night. Yeah, you because know, it's all down to me, and or but it's and it's, you know, I don't get to relax. I don't have to. I don't get to have weekends. You, you're always thinking about it. Yes. Did you it's ever? Just that that thing. It's that thing about like what? I I'm not going to think about work. And all you do is think about work. Yes, well, absolutely. I mean, I suppose when you've got something, you've got to produce something from scratch, it must be quite a kind of challenging experience. Did you ever sort of, you know, like, did you ever worry about your kind of mental health and, and sort of how you were going to survive it? Or did you always feel um, quite robust at times? No, I, don't, I, I, I didn't think that I was going to go after rail, but I mean, like, you know, I get, I get depressions and stuff. And I, I felt that, and I once went to a therapist and um, he asked me about the questions and he said, you've got burnout. You've got that thing that, wolf, that, that um, businessmen get, like you can't, 
it's like a kind of functioning depression, but you're actually depressed. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you, you know, you function and you go along and you don't break down, but it's like, you know, you're not happy. And I said, no, I'm fucking miserable. But I think that happens to a lot of people. Yeah. It's just all too much. Yes. Well, I'm sure during this last year, it definitely is. Yes. And do you sort of feel, you know, because with, you know, Adam still sort of coming out and doing the odd tour and yeah, he's not really releasing much. Does that often feel kind of, do you ever sort of feel like you wished you could sort of just not, you know, reach out in a huggy way, but would would be nice to sort of. <laughs> no, I did. I did try. I did try. Never got back to me. So I thought uh, my girlfriend at the time and to my publisher was very keen for me to, you know, for us to get back together and I said, but it's not like that, you know. It's like, oh, you've got, to, you know, put your ego aside. And I said, oh, my ego is aside, but it, it's like it just, you know. And you go, yeah, but it's not like that, and he's not like this, and it's not. Like, oh yeah, because you know him, don't you? And it's like, so in the end, I said, all right, all right, and I got my publisher to sort of put out a feeder saying, you know, do you want to do something? I don't know what it was we were going to do, but I never heard back. I thought, well, that's told me, isn't it? And I'm not going to try again. Yes. I know. Tricky, isn't it, really? Very tricky. So what... Well, the... you can't... You can't... It's a bit like having a girlfriend. It's an ex-girlfriend. Do you want to get back together? Well, no, I don't. Well, that's it, isn't it? I'll keep on. No. It is tricky. Did you ever... Did the album, just going back to Persuasion, did that ever get released? No, it, it got shelved by... I don't even remember the label, MCA. Yes. Are there ever any plans to sort of bring it out? Um, I think I tried once. Um, but I had no relationship with MCA, nor did Adam, actually. But I had even lesser one because never been signed to them. Yes. I don't know. There wasn't really kind of much. They didn't seem to want to put it out. Really, so. Yeah. From your memory, or even your cassettes, are you quite pleased with the work, or...? I can't remember it, um, to be honest. Uh, I haven't listened to it since. Um, some of it was good. Some of it was good, but I, I mean, I wasn't really very hands-on with it. Yeah. Tricky, isn't it? Yes, God, yeah. the world of um, of creativity. Well, look, Marco, this has been <laughs> this has been great. Well, thank you again for giving me the time for this because it's been brilliant. It's um, all right. I'm sorry, I'm sorry it's taken so long, but it's just been, as I'm sure you've noticed, it's been an unusual year. <laughs> it's been horrendous um, in places. Yeah, no, it's no, but it's absolutely fine. And also, I remember speaking to you before Christmas, and you were like. Yeah, just didn't feel into it. I, I, I was just, I, I, I sort of, you know, I had a bad breakup last year and it just sort of really affected, really sort of knocked me down. It's just, I feel fine now, but then it was just awful. It was just an awful breakup. Yes. And you're left in the country. And I'm left in the country wondering what the fuck now. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Not the, not the, not the, it's had to sort of, not 
I, I don't have to start. It's a bit. It is a bit like starting again. It's like, well, where do I live now? I don't think I can live. I don't know if London's the same. I don't know what. I don't know if the world's the same anymore. Indeed. And on that cliffhanger, we're going to leave it there because then we just say our goodbyes, <clears throat> which goes on for ages. Anyway, look, you don't need to hear that, though it's quite amusing. Um, yeah, so a big thank you to Marco Peroni for giving me the time for that interview. Um, this has been David Easter. If you want to contact me for some exciting reason, make it positive, though. Um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86show. And uh, all these have been archived. So if you want to find out anything about indie pop bands from the golden decade that was the... 80s mostly, as well as a bit of a David Bowie obsession, then do check it out. Anyway, um, yes, that's it. Yeah, just in case I didn't mention that, you can find those interviews on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, C86 Show. That's all you just got to put into the search engine. Have a great week. Stay safe.